continue our study through the letter of 1 Corinthians, though as I've already mentioned, we will be deviating from the text of 1 Corinthians for a couple weeks before we return back to this passage. I want to read verses 10 and 11 of this, uh, of this seventh chapter of Paul given to the church at Corinth, and then turn to Mark chapter 10. I'll read the first 12 verses of that chapter. 1 Corinthians 7, two verses, beginning with verse 10, then turning to Mark chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give attention to it as it's publicly read this morning. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Turning to Mark chapter 10, reading the first 12 verses of the chapter, Mark 10, beginning with verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Amen. This is indeed the word of the living and true God. Let's ask for his help as we consider what is indeed a difficult subject, but let's ask for for God's help. He's promised to give it. Let's pray together. Father, as we now turn our attention to this, your word mindful of the promise that you have given to your people, that your spirit would be given to any who ask. And so we ask this morning that you might grant your spirit to us, that our eyes would be opened, our ears attentive to that which you have for your church. Be gracious to us, even at this time, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I suspect it is true about most lawyers Perhaps, I don't know every lawyer, but I know some, and it seems to me that one of the jobs of a lawyer, indeed, is to find some way, something in the law, something that is stated in the law, that they can utilize, that they can use and to take advantage of to defend or, or even prosecute a, a particular individual. It is the nature of lawyers, indeed, to do that. That's one of the things that they do. And in much the same way, here in this text before us, we have very much a similar theme. We have men, of course, not lawyers, uh, but religious people, who seek to find a loophole, to seek to find some matter within the confines of God's law that they can exploit, in other words, that they can use to do what they really want to do anyway, and looking for some religious way of sanctioning their behavior and thus allowing it. The subject, of course, is that of divorce. It is clearly the point of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. It is clearly the point of the Savior in Mark chapter 10. It is a subject that itself is wrought with great difficulty. Ask any pastor, any elder in the church, on any occasion in which this has come to their door, The subject is often very complicated. With that said, let me offer a few comments before we even get into the passage. As we consider this point of God's Word this morning, I am aware of the subject and how it may affect some of you in this room. 
As I have labored to understand, the mind of the Spirit is given in this passage and the passage we're going to see over the next few weeks. I realize how it may be perceived and even received. My intention as your pastor is not to harm you. That is not my goal. Understanding the emotional nature of this subject. It is to show you what God's perfect plan is for marriage. That he ordained the institution of marriage as a good and holy thing. Divorce, on the other hand, is not something God desires. And frankly, every divorce, regardless of the circumstances, always breaks the heart of God. With that said, and insofar as we can know our own hearts, each one of us, whether divorced or not, are prone to erecting loopholes in which we set out to justify our behavior and our sin before God. This passage before us reminds us that God does not trifle with sin, regardless of the sin, whether it's the sin of divorce and a biblical divorce or some other sin. This passage reminds us that God is holy. He does not accept our lawyer-like tendencies to argue loopholes with him. First, it really can't be done because God cannot be deceived. Second, it's really foolish and sinful to even try. You and I have the responsibility as Christians to accept the word of God as it is given. In its historical and its grammatical context and not to seek to deviate or do violence to it or twist it or pervert it or regardless of our personal experience. Whether it's divorce or some other matter. I know this subject is difficult for some of you. I know just about everybody in this room that is intimately interested in this particular series. I've heard from at least one of you about it. And I know it's hard. But oftentimes it is difficult because we are sinners looking into the holy intentions of God for us in our marriages as we walk together in this world. What do we need most? Perhaps you're here this morning and you have been divorced. Maybe you're here this morning and you're contemplating it. God forbid. What do you need to know? What do you need to hear? Well, let me just say up front, right now, brothers and sisters, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Maybe you have been, and we'll find out through these next three weeks that your divorce was not, as they call it, a biblical divorce. That may happen. It is not the unpardonable sin. The gospel is still extended to you. The hope of forgiveness in Christ is still there. And it's there that you must look. It is there that you must lean. It is there that you must rest. Regardless of what happened. That can't be solved or fixed now. You trust Christ. We know in Scripture that God from the very beginning declared marriage to be good. Divorce has never been and will never be that which God is pleased to witness. But as I've mentioned already, and I cannot stress this enough, it is not the unpardonable sin. It is forgivable and it is redeemable by the work of a gracious God who knows your deepest need. And perhaps that's all you need to hear this morning. Christ loves me in spite of my failures. Isn't that what we all need to hear? Every Lord's Day, every day? The context of the passage before us in Mark chapter 10 is quite clear. It's really still within the confines of that section in Mark's gospel in which he's dealing with matters pertaining to Christian discipleship. He started that back in Mark chapter 8, and he's woven his way through various subjects. He gets to Mark chapter 10, and of course, as want as, as the Pharisees were uh, often doing, they come they, they, for no good reason other than to test Christ, to set a trap, to lay a trap for him, to ensnare him in some way. They come argumentative, They come 
to trap him. Here in this passage, Jesus is not arguing that marriage is good, but you can get out of it if you want to. Jesus is setting before us God's truest intention for marriage. He wants you to see that marriage is always good, but the issue of marriage and divorce is not the only issue in this passage. And it's not. The other matter is that you, as disciples of Christ, and this is why this passage applies to you who are unmarried, you who are married and divorce isn't on the radar, thank the Lord for that, and it never should be. This passage is for everybody in this room. Because what we have here before us in this context is a bunch of people, a bunch of men, religious leaders, who are seeking to find a loophole in God's law that they might do what they want to do anyway. And that is sin against God. And so I want to show you here in this 10th chapter of Mark, in these 12 verses, as we begin, three parts, looking at this subject, first of marriage and its good intention, what God designed it to be, why He wants it, what He calls it, then moving to some particulars next week when it comes to the reality of divorce. It happens. We know it happens. What are the biblical confines in which divorce is established before we end back in Paul's letter where he deals with another matter that Jesus didn't deal with. I'm going to show you this morning that the opponents of the gospel look for loopholes to justify their behavior, but true disciples of Christ submit to God's truest intentions when it comes to his law. Pharisees, opponents of the gospel, are going to look for any way they can to get out of doing what God plainly says to do. They're looking for a loophole to justify their behavior. But true disciples of Christ submit to God's truest intention. The truest intentions that he establishes in his law, and they're willing to follow it. Two points as we consider these 12 verses. First, we will consider that opponents of the gospel look for loopholes. We'll see this in the first five verses of the chapter. And then we will take note that followers of the gospel, however, look to submit to God's true intentions. We'll see this in verses 6 through 9 of Mark chapter 10. Let's first consider the fact, and it's a reality, maybe it's your reality, that opponents of the gospel look to find ways around That which God has most plainly said. What he commands to do. First, the setting. What is the setting? Why is it even important? Why do I mention it? Well, because in this case, it's very important. Mark gives the setting to us there, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. He is in Judea. You know where that is. If I were to draw you a map, which I'm not doing, but... If you flip to the back of your Bible and don't really know where Judea is, it's in the southern area of Israel. It's that place which Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is. In general significance, Jesus is making his way now in Mark's timeline. He is making his way to that very central city, the capital city, Jerusalem itself. Why? That he might offer himself a ransom for many, that he might die. He is journeying there. And he is going there with haste and zeal. Mark comes back to that very quickly in chapter 11 when he says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So we're only one chapter away from Jesus being right there at the city of crucifixion. Mark puts this region right up front. For us. Why? Because of the specific significance of this particular encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees. Most scholars believe that he's in Perea, the region of Judea, where Herod Antipas, the one whom John the Baptist rebuked, why? For his divorce and remarriage. If in fact that's the case, If, in fact, that is the specific location, then that region itself drives the subject. A well-known story. Many have heard it. 
John the Baptist rebukes the king for his unbiblical divorce and remarriage to Herodias. You remember what happened to him as a result. He was imprisoned, and he lost his head, foolishly, but he lost it nonetheless because he stood faithful to the Word of God. What is the work that is occurring here? Well, the text tells us that he's continued to teach. He is still teaching. He is teaching his disciples. They are certainly present there in this particular narrative. They're hearing the words that Christ is saying. He's teaching his 12, as well as the crowds that are there, as the crowds gathered to him again. He's preaching. And it's in the backdrop of this preaching that this testing comes. Not the first time the Pharisees have done this, is it? I mean, we've seen this all the way through the gospel record time and time again. These these so-called religious leaders continually dog the heels of the Savior over any number of issues. The Sabbath day, here... They come to test him on this matter of marriage and divorce. Who are the players? Well, we have the Pharisees there. The text tells us as much. The Pharisees, these are the people who have regularly opposed the mission and work of the Savior. They accused him. Uh, think just, you know, just a cursory thinking through the things that they have done. Well, they've accused him of casting out demons by Satan. How does he be accused of that? They've accused him of breaking the law of God regarding the Sabbath, and now they're challenging him on matters of marriage and divorce. They're not friendly. They're opponents of what Christ is teaching and preaching and speaking. They have a purpose. The text tells us. We don't have to wonder what the purpose is. They didn't come because they're seeking counsel. They're not coming as some of you might come to me or one of the elders and might ask advice about something. No, they're they're coming to trap him. They're coming to, as the text tells us plainly, they are coming to test him. This is an adverb of purpose. Clearly, grammatically, this is what it's being designed for. It gives to us the true intention of the heart of the Pharisees. They have no interest in understanding. They have no interest in learning. They are coming to test the Savior. It's the same term that Mark uses in chapter 1 and verse 13 during the very temptation of Christ. Why are they doing this? Keeping in mind the, the firm reality that they are opponents of the gospel, looking for any way they can to get around the very law of God that they say they believe and teach. Why are they doing this? Well, putting simply, they hate the Savior. They hate him. No love there. At every turn throughout the ministry of Christ, they sought to bring reproach upon him. All opponents of the gospel at their root are full of hatred, not for his followers as much as they are for Christ. Now, regardless of what they say to your face, brothers and sisters, they don't love the Savior. You may be in the way, but it's Christ they don't love. And they seek then, therefore, to trick and test and try our Lord. They have ulterior motives. They're not honestly asking a theological question, but are looking to trap the Savior on a subject that is hotly debated and well-known. Jesus has said already as much in the Sermon on the Mount, a very passage we're going to come back to next week. When we start looking at specific elements related to the issue of divorce, in Matthew chapter 5, that Sermon on the Mount, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. They've heard this before. This is not a new teaching. They are actually responding in some level, in some sense, to which Jesus has already plainly taught as an accurate summary and expression of what the law of God 
intended and taught all the way back in Deuteronomy 24. And so they ask this question, don't they? There it is, plainly. They came to test him. There in verse 2, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I've always wondered, or maybe I do wonder, why didn't they ask it the other way? Is it lawful for a woman to divorce her husband? Maybe because of the information of Deuteronomy 24 that was feeding this question, the wrong understanding of Deuteronomy 24? Your guess would be as good as mine. But they bring this question to Christ. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife literally for any reason? She burnt the toast. You're out. She squeezed the toothpaste in the middle. You knew I was going to say that one. You men probably commit that crime more than the women, but... In the Pharisees' day, there were two schools of thought in relationship to the question that they used as a trap or test to Jesus. First is the school of Shammai, which allowed divorce only in the case of adultery. Sounds a little like Christ's words, maybe. Then there's the school of Hillel, which allowed for it, allowed it for almost any reason. Burning a meal. Pick one. It doesn't matter. I'm tired of it. I don't want to be married anymore. I'm done. There was two competing schools in the first century, in this particular era. This is what was going on. This is what was circulating around the streets of Judea. And they come with this intentions to justify then what they want to do. What school do they want to follow? The second one. They come to justify their own sinful motives, to find loopholes in the debate regarding divorce. And so the Savior responds wisely, of course. But he responds wisely nonetheless. He answers them, verse 3, What did Moses command you? What did Moses say? You who are trying to find a way out of the situation, you who are trying to find loopholes in the law of God, what did Moses say? He responds. How does he respond? He responds with the word of God. He doesn't invent new language. He doesn't invent a new law. He simply responds to the scriptures against those who would test and trap him. He responds to the word of God, and that is how you and I ought to reply to anyone, everyone who seeks to find loopholes to justify their own sin. What does the Bible say? Yeah, but you don't understand my circle. What does the Bible say? But you don't want, but what does the Bible say? Yeah, but I want to do this. Okay, what does the Bible say? But, I, but I, what does the Bible That is how we must respond. We must respond individually that way. We must respond to one another that way. What do the scriptures say? Jesus knows their intention. He knows what they're trying to do. And he goes right to the only authority we have. And he speaks the word of God to them. And so he probes Notice how he says it to them. What did Moses command you? They said, verse 4, Moses allowed. Notice the change in the word. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? They say he allowed. We are obviously talking about two different texts of Scripture now, aren't we? They're inferring from his response that Moses means Deuteronomy 24. What Jesus is actually talking about in the context of Mark 10 is Genesis chapter 2. Huge difference, isn't it? What did Moses command? What God has joined together, let no man separate. That's the command. The allowance comes in Deuteronomy 24 because of the hardness of men's hearts. 
He invites the Pharisees to think more clearly through this subject just by a simple use of one word. Changes the entire test and exposes their heart as guys who would just seek to get around the very command of the Bible. They appeal to Deuteronomy 24. Jesus appeals to Genesis chapter 2. And so they respond, they rebut, they misunderstand, they don't hear correctly, they weren't paying attention. And how do they respond? They respond with, well, Moses permitted divorce, therefore we can get a divorce. But the Savior didn't ask for a permission statement, he asked for a command statement. There is no command in Deuteronomy 24. You can go check if you know how to read Hebrew, you can go check, get your Bible programs out, it's not there. It's possible, it's permissible under certain circumstances, and I'm not going to get into all the ins and outs of it in the sermon. But there is no command. The Savior asked for a command. What did Moses command you? And the opponents, they replied with permission. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, Moses allowed it, that is to say God allowed it under certain circumstances. Moses allowed it as he pens it in Deuteronomy 24. They reply with a legal text in which divorce is regulated, not commanded. Thus they ripped the original intention of the Scriptures right out of its greater context. Now why would they do that? Other than the fact that they're blind... Well, they're doing, they're looking for loopholes. I don't like the Genesis 2 passage where it commands me to cleave to my wife, let no man separate it. It's for life. This is what I should be go, aiming for. This is the command of God for marriage. This is his best design. I don't like that plan. I don't like my wife. I want out of this mess. And so they go to the Deuteronomy 24 passage to find permission, even under any circumstance. They're looking for a loophole. A reason granted to allow them to do what they already want to do anyway. It's funny like that. I've witnessed this with people. They'll come to me for counsel. Put that in scare quotes, you know, the air. Right. And I can see it coming, too, usually when it happens. They come to me for counsel, but they're not really interested in counsel. What they want me to do is affirm what they really want to do. And that is not a very good thing they're going to do. And they want me to say it's okay to do it. And so if I say it's okay to do it, then they can say, the pastor said it was okay. Like, that's going to matter before God, okay? Really? No. Jesus isn't going to give them an out. They're not looking for advice. They're looking for permission. Please let me divorce my wife. Please let it be that I can get divorced for any reason. And that would be just great. And he doesn't give them it, does he? Just by one word, changes everything. They're looking for a loophole, and on top of it, they're looking for God's blessing. In other words, how can we sin in this way and still stay in God's good graces? Sounds like an oxymoron to me. How can I sin and still stay in God's good graces? Can't be done. One word Commanded versus permitted changes the whole entire landscape of the text. Because he knows, Jesus knows, their heart intention. It's our heart intention all too often, isn't it? We search the Bible looking for what? An opportunity to do what we really want to do and we know we can't. And we'll twist scripture, we'll make it say what we want to say, we'll change words, we'll pretzelize the thing, we'll do whatever's necessary. I can make the Bible say just about anything, devoid of its grammatical and historical context. We are prone to that as sinful people. We're not unlike the Pharisees in many ways. We need to be careful. And we take God at his word, the plain reading of the text of the Bible, and address it honestly faithfully. I know sometimes it's going to hurt. Sometimes it's going to tell you, sorry, children, you can't marry that unbeliever, but you don't understand, Pastor. I'm in, I'm in love with them. Great. But the Bible says you can't marry them. Yeah, but, 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 but I might save them if I marry them. Loophole. 
It's a good thing to advance the gospel. That's a loophole. You have a clear command, young people, not to do that. Now, God might bless it in some way. He often does that, doesn't He? Blesses us despite our sin. Only He's able to do that. We don't go out of our way to make it happen. We take the plain reading of Scripture. They're not doing that. One word changed everything. What is the foundational issue that Jesus is addressing here? And he, as they seek to unpack this whole permission thing from Deuteronomy 24, well, first, Moses did not command divorce. He merely permitted it. It's not a pretext to divorce, but an attempt to limit its worst consequences. Note that Jesus says it's, not, it's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses permitted it. That is to say, because of the worst possible consequences that might come, because of the hardness of the heart of the husband or the wife, and the inability to reconcile, the inability to get past certain things, you might kill each other. But it's because of our sin that God permits this. It's not because it's the best design, nor is it commanded. Divine intention for marriage cannot be determined from a text about divorce. Note, Deuteronomy 24 is not impertival. That is to say, it's not commanded. I've already mentioned that. Second, Deuteronomy 24 is merely concessive. What do we do if divorce comes to our door is the question. Deuteronomy 24 does not set forth the absolute and perfect will of God for marriage either. Divorce is really due to the hardness of the heart of man which is the result of sin in this life. One commentator puts it this way. As soon as I open this paper, I'll tell you. Such language is used primarily of people's attitudes towards God rather than that of the way they treat each other. If, thus, if this refers here to not man's cruelty towards their wives or vice versa, but to the rebellion against God's will for them, it is the hardness of their heart that has led them to divorce in the first place and made it necessary for Moses to legislate for a situation which was never envisioned in the divine purpose, never intended in God's direct command and purpose for marriage. Opponents of the gospel then, therefore, will always look for ways around that which God has said, especially as it relates to marriage, because they have hard hearts, because of sin, not because they know the real intention God has for his creatures. And Jesus is going to get into, he begins, he starts at the end of this passage and the last Three verses, verses 10 through 12, he lays out for the disciples only, by the way, he lays out one of those certain circumstances by concession that divorce is permitted. Elaborating further on what he says in Matthew 5, which we will see next week. So if you're waiting for me to get into that subject today, sorry, cliffhanger, you have to come back next Sunday. You should anyway, so it really doesn't matter. Followers of the Haters of the gospel, those who do not love the law, those who do not love Christ are going to find ways around his law. And they'll find them because they're awfully creative. But true disciples of Christ desire to follow what God says. What does he say? What does the Lord say? In the social media world, there's a phrase that goes on. It, it gets sent around quite often lately. Did God really say? I've heard it a thousand times if I heard it once. Well, did God really say that marriage is to be with one man for one woman for life? He did. Did God really say? Those of you who are married and love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you need to remind yourself of that truth. Divorce should never be on the radar for you. It should not be discussed amongst yourselves in fights and arguments, self-fulfilling prophecies. I've seen it more than once. God's truest intention, His command, 
is that you get married and stay married until death do you part. Followers of the gospel look to submit to God's true intentions, verses 6 through 9. Notice how Jesus highlights it for us, following not the Deuteronomy 24 text, but the Genesis 2 text. Marriage is good, and it is good. And it's ordained by God himself. It's not a state issue. It's not a country issue. It's not a civil issue necessarily, although it comes into play. It's an ordained by God issue. And notice where it happens. Before there was ever any hardness of heart, no sin. The most perfect marriage you would ever witness in this world happened between Adam and Eve. What? Yes. No sin. I wonder what that was like. No hardness of heart. It was ordained by God. The true intention, the creation statement is what Jesus is appealing to here with these testers, these interlocutors, these these ones who try to trap him. The contrast to rebuke the loophole seeking opponents. Jesus appeals to a text of scripture that predates Deuteronomy 24 by a large margin. In the beginning, it's at the head of the text as you look in Mark Mark 10. But from the beginning, verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, you're not going to see this in the English. It's not as clear. But in the Greek, that phrase, that, that phrase there, in the beginning, is at the very head of the verse. It's the beginning words, if you'll forgive the pun. Well, I'm not sure that's a pun either. I'll get corrected later, I'm sure, by some grammar Nazi in the room. It's emphasized. The beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the world. The first parents, in the wake of creation, in the very beginning, it was not so. The first principle here established is that God made them male and female. He breathed life into them for his eternal purpose. Jesus employs a creation text to argue against a legal text that is merely concessive in nature with a creation purpose. Not only a creation statement, but a creation purpose. Notice the connective element that Jesus employs there in verse 7. Therefore... Because God made you from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female because that is true, and it is true, regardless of what the culture out there is telling you, there are not 19 different sexes or whatever it is up to today. There are two, male and female. They're different too, by the way, in many ways. Because that's true, he gives a purpose. Therefore, he says... A man, the male of the species, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He shall cleave to his wife. Jesus is almost directly quoting, undoubtedly quoting right out of the Septuagint translation. Here, it's there. It's a direct reference to Genesis 2. A man should leave his father and mother, unite with his wife, and they will become one flesh. Even as God is one, so are the husband and wife in marriage. Even as God cannot be divided, so must the husband and wife not divide. They are one. Husbands, wives, do you see yourself that way? Is that how your marriage looks to you? You are one flesh, one people. And that's not a grammar error. You are plural, but one. You've been joined, body and soul, as it were. You're that picture. And God, in his wisdom, knew, of course, when he instituted marriage, that that you would be the picture of Christ in the church. And we are united to Christ, and he to us. And we are his bride, and he is our husband. We are one. 
The statement is that God made them male and female. The purpose is that they might join together. They might, the man might leave his father and mother, unite with his wife, become one flesh. But we know what happened, don't we? Sin. Not too many days later, maybe hours, maybe minutes, depends on your view. Genesis 3 shows up, darkest chapter in the Bible, at least half of it. Rebellion enters in. The hardness of heart. All result of sin that corrupts the great intention, the glorious intention, the best intention, the perfect intention of God for His his creation, for male and female, enters into the world. Rebellion leads then, therefore, to us finding excuses to how we might get out of this thing that Jesus Himself says, that God Himself said in Genesis chapter 2, no man should separate. What is it the divorce rate is in the world today? 50%? I don't know. It's up there. You know, it's not much different in the church either, by the way. And almost never because of the two reasons that Jesus and Paul give as a concession to that marriage that no man should separate. I don't like them very much anymore. We're not compatible anymore. Pick something. Rebellion enters into the world through sin, thus calling creatures made by God to submit to his true intentions, the true intentions for marriage, that it was ordained by God. It is God who established marriage, not man. It was his idea, not man. It was his sovereign good pleasure that he might unite them together as that which was ordered by God in which they were given a command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. A command that was given that in the wake of Adam coming to this epiphany, that he was absolutely alone on the earth. Can you imagine? He named that animal and that animal and that animal, and he finally hits him. You know what? There's nobody like me around here. They all got each other. God knew that. He met his need, gives him a wife. The first marriage ceremony in the Bible, God is the one who gives the bride away. But it's not good for a man to be alone. He gives in a divine action a helper suitable for the man that was made from the man. The woman was brought to the man. There goes no homosexual marriage. That's off the table. I'm not even going to use that stupid expression that we hear all the time on that subject. You know what I mean. And he declares them to be one flesh. Therefore, what God has done, and it's all of God, note, it's all of God. He made you. He provided for you. He gave to you. He did all of this that you might not separate. Whatever God has done, you should not and cannot separate. And that's what Jesus says. They are no longer two, at the verse, end of verse 8, they are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, not man, not the minister officiating the wedding, what God has brought together, what God has united, what he has done, no man should ever separate. Now, I didn't write it. These are the words of Christ. This is what Paul meant when he says, the Lord says, not I. He's referring to these things. In a nutshell, Jesus is saying, brothers and sisters, that marriage is for life. That is the true intention, the God-ordained intention for every marriage that comes, every marriage that God joins. He has united the two into one flesh. The husband and wife, they form a team. They work, they plan, they pray, they pull, etc. together in this world. They are a team. And they operate as one. Therefore, you do not separate. 
do not divorce. Yes, we're going to get to the concessions next week and the week after. I know they're there. But I'm giving you the truest intention for marriage. It is given by God as a pleasing thing to help one another as we live in this world. It's given by God to protect us, as we've seen already from our sermons in 1 Corinthians, to protect one another from the snares of Satan, our own sinful desires. It's given by God to demonstrate His love and affection as as a covenant-making God who will not separate from His people. Can you imagine the threat that would hang over us if there was always a possibility that Jesus would divorce His bride? Well, that's it. I'm done. You guys have messed up one too many times. Too many toothpaste squeezing in the wrong place. Well, I'm out of here. I mean, that would be destabilizing to our faith. We would have no faith. It's given by God as a picture of Christ in the church. The true intention given by God in His Word is that what God has joined together Let no man separate. But, but, the topic is divorce. And as I've said to you already, and as we move into the next two sermons, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Maybe you're here today. I know some of you who are. I don't know all the circumstances, and I don't need to. Because I do know this, that even these dopey Pharisees would have found forgiveness in Christ if they just simply asked for it. That matter, that subject, that issue of your past, whatever it is, is redeemable by Christ who gives these words, who just reiterates the very words of the Spirit given in Genesis 2. But we must acknowledge what the Word of God says. We're not going to commit this sin of the first point. The Word of God says it isn't God's truest design for His creatures to divorce. He never intended it that way, and it is only because of our sinfulness that divorce exists in the first place. The plain teaching of the Savior in this passage is unarguable on this point. Now, maybe you feel the weight of it. I don't know. Maybe you're looking back over your shoulder right now, which is not a place I want you living. And maybe you are. What do you do? Well, you do what you do for any sermon that strikes a nerve or prangs the conscience. You recognize that you are a sinner in need of the saving mercy of God. Guess what? So am I. We all are. If it's not divorce, it's something else. It's some other sin. I am in need of the saving mercy of Christ. Period. Repent of it. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never honestly looked to the Lord and said, this divorce was not in agreement with your word. And I can tell you, just speaking candidly, I'm your pastor, so I get to do that every now and then. I know a little of what this is like. On this subject, my wife and I have lived it. Not that we were divorced, but someone awfully close to us was. Turn away from it. Look to the Lord of God of heaven. Ask for his grace. He'll give it. I guarantee it. Otherwise, he's a liar. And he's not. Believe that in your crying out to a holy God, he will forgive you. Perhaps you're here and you think, well, this passage has nothing to do with me. Well, I beg to differ. You're not divorced, you say. You don't plan on getting divorced. I'm glad to hear that. What about the other areas of God's moral law? As a disciple of Christ, you are bound to keep all of His commandments and not look for loopholes. 
Oh, the Lord's Day, but. Oh, the second commandment, but. Oh, the fifth commandment, but. Loopholes. How is your discipleship when it comes to the following items? Idolatry, keeping God's name holy and not profaning his word, works, and attributes. The Lord's Day, honor to superiors. Murdering, maybe in speech or attitude and heart. Yeah, but you don't understand. That guy's a creep. He deserves it. Oh, I see. Loophole. Stealing. Lying. Coveting. We're all guilty. But the solution is the same to the ones who've had a divorce, isn't it? You look to Christ. You, you, you throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You beg forgiveness and he gives it. We all find loopholes. The best of pastors and elders and deacons to the worst of the people in the church. We're all finding loopholes. We're like the Pharisees, aren't we? But when we do and the Spirit of God presses our conscience, we should not make matters worse by justifying our behavior, but instead we must flee to the cross. We must beg forgiveness from our Father in heaven. We must thank Him for His corrective work for us and His forgiveness of sin that He offers us. That's where we must go. That's where you must go. That's where you, who have struggled in marriages, must go. You see, Jesus stands there before you, and he says to you, you come to me. I know about your divorce. You come to me anyway. I know about your idolatry. You come to me anyway. I know about your profaning the Lord's day. You come to me anyway. I know about your murder. I know about your stealing. I know about all of it. You come to me anyway. And what does he do? He receives you, and he forgives you. This is your Savior. It may sound stern in the passage, but remember, in a few short days, he's going to offer his life for those who will be divorced unbiblically, for murderers and thieves and Sabbath breakers and idolaters. That's what he's going to do, because that is your Savior. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and though these are hard things to deal with and even preach and work through, we ask, Father, that the gospel would soothe those who may be struggling. You are a kind and forgiving God. We fall short. We know it. We are thankful for Christ and the hope he gives us. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.